On this episode of Missouri Catfish, we talk to shrimp expert Dr. Raymond T. Bauer about the mysterious Ohio shrimp. I'm your host, Cliff Thornburg. Shove off with us and let's get started. It is January 17th. You're listening to Missouri Catfish Podcast. Our contact information is Missouri Catfish Podcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook at Missouri Catfish Podcast and Night Owl Bait Company. The weather has been absolutely beautiful, although it's been a little windy, but I hope everybody's been out there enjoying the outdoors. I know we have. I haven't really been fishing much, but we've been out four wheeling and, and getting ready for fishing, which to me, kind of encompasses all of life's to-do lists so, so we can get out there and, and really really start hammering them. As far as fishing reports, we've had relatively slow fishing reported on the Missouri River, at least around here, and I'm talking Dalton, Glasgow, Brunswick. But it's been relatively slow fishing, and I've had reports of just white-hot fishing on Truman and Lake of the Ozarks. A lot of people are patterning shad around channels. Um, sometimes, if water temperatures dictate, they're, they're getting back in the in the coves. But people have been really catching a lot of fish and nice fish, and and so so thankful for everyone for sending in their their pictures and everything. It's great to hear people having success. So at this time, if you are struggling on the river, I think Lake of the Ozarks. Truman, if you need your confidence back, I think you could go down there and and get on some fish or at least see some fish and, and try to catch them. Missouri Department of Conservation has warned of low water at the ramps on the Missouri River and on, on the lakes. Truman and Lake of the Ozarks, I think, are the only ones they listed, but I can't imagine Palm de Terre is high. All these boat ramps around are are low, so... Be very careful and don't tear up your boat trailer. What's interesting and that I did not know, which we can add to the list of many things I do not know, they said that prop wash was a contributor for your boat falling off there. So when you push your boat up on the trailer with the motor, when the water's real low, your prop washes... The, the water moving, if it's real shallow, it washes, I guess, a big divot in there. And I had always just assumed that the slab of concrete that the boat ramp was on kind of fell off to the edge. It was just on the edge and then had a big drop off anyway, but hadn't even thought of prop wash. Something to think about. Missouri Department of Conservation has also confirmed a mountain lion sighting in northern Boone County of our state. So 
that is exciting. It was on a game camera. And for those that are not familiar around the state, Boone County, that's where Columbia is. So it's about halfway between Kansas City and St. Louis on I-70. If you drew a line, you'd be in Boone County, named after Daniel Boone. But the, the exciting thing is here, geographically, it's right in the middle of the state, and it was a, a large lion, so that is neat. Also, if you're interested in birds or waterfowl, there are many swans in the Sheraton County, Western Randolph County region right now. So if you're interested in that, you can go online. I'm sure Swan Lake or some of these other waterfowl wetland-type places, lakes, there are a lot of swans out there right now, in addition to bald eagles, of course, on all the open water. Our guest, I am so excited for this podcast, and I almost waited too long to publish it. I wanted to publish it right when we did the interview, kind of the obnoxious part of myself, but we just released our last podcast with Joe Bell, so I wanted to give that one time. But Dr. Raymond T. Bauer is a professor of biology at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and he is he is the expert on shrimp, and you're probably wondering, why do we have an expert on shrimp on the Missouri Catfish Podcast? Seems like a long way from the ocean. And I did not know this, but there are freshwater shrimp, but we have him on here for the Ohio shrimp. And it is a shrimp that needs fresh and salt water to complete its life cycle. And it was found on the lower or lower Mississippi to us. So around Cape Girardeau, down southern part of Missouri on the Mississippi, it had historically been found. And then they thought it was gone. It had been extinct from our state. However, it was recently rediscovered. And I thought this is just such a cool life history story. A cool, just an awesome animal. I, and I just couldn't believe that a tiny shrimp would come up the Mississippi River. So we have Dr. Bauer on here to talk about that. He is getting ready to release in, in a couple months a new book on shrimp. And we'll have a link to that. But catfish are an apex predator. So I, I think for all of us to become better fishermen, the more we learn about all these different animals that interact with catfish, I think we're going to be better fishermen. And even if not, this is just a remarkable standalone species that I, I think everyone ought to know about. So without further ado, here is Dr. Raymond T. Bauer on the Ohio shrimp. We are on here. Is it do you, do you go by Professor Bauer or Dr. Bauer? Uh, either one, but you can call me Ray. <laughs> okay. Okay, Ray. We we have you on here because there was a, a fascinating animal that I just found out about that was in the state of Missouri, and it was believed to be missing for quite a while, and then they found it again, and, and it's the Ohio shrimp, and, and you're an expert on that, correct? Yes, that is. Yes, I've uh, published uh, some... Uh, several papers on that uh, here awesome. in work uh, in the uh, lower Miss lower Mississippi here in Louisiana. Yeah. And it's uh, 
interesting that you find it up there. This was in the Missouri River or the Mississippi? The, the Mississippi. Okay, that makes more sense. And um, uh, in the past, uh, right now, the uh, river shrimp is fairly abundant in uh, in Louisiana, in the Mississippi and, and the Chafalaya rivers and, uh, and perhaps other drainages, but that's uh, what I've uh, seen reported so far. And it uh, historically, though, has been abundant up until about the 1930s, all the way up uh, into uh, at least as far as Cairo and then uh, even further. And uh, interestingly, all the way up into uh, the Ohio River, uh, as far as at least as far as Chester, Illinois, and probably beyond. And but it's no longer there or it's in reduced abundance. Uh, and the reason for that is that. Um, uh, the first of all is the building of dams. Uh, there's no made, uh, high dams on the Mississippi, but in the Ohio there is, and then in the major uh, tributaries into the Missouri, I mean into the Mississippi, such as the uh, the Red and Arkansas and so on, uh, they also uh, had uh, Mississippi River shrimp. But again, uh, the high dams on those rivers have blocked their migration, and the, the, there's a migration. Um, upstream uh, from uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So if you want, I'll explain the life cycle. Yeah, that, and I think that's, well, I don't know everything about the, I don't know what I don't know, but that seems to be an awesome part is their complex life. Yes, they have a, a lifestyle which is uh, called amphidromy. And uh, that's similar to, um, it's a life cycle in which part of the Life cycle is spent in fresh water and part in the sea. And it's very much like uh, two other forms of diadromous life cycles, which are the anadromy, which is, for example, the salmon uh, or some species of sturgeon in which they uh, uh, live most of their adult life in the sea, grow and uh, become adults. But then they move into fresh water to do uh, to spawn and then the uh, Larvae and the uh, young stages spend some time in fresh water and then go out to sea. And the opposite of that is catadromy. And for example, the freshwater eel, which is just the opposite. The eel spends most of its life cycle in fresh water and then has to migrate out to sea uh, in order to get to its breeding grounds, which uh, interestingly are way out in the Atlantic in the Sargasso Sea. And breeding occurs there, it's never been seen but uh, the first stage larvae, which are very unique, are, are encountered there. And then they're found uh, in the currents that lead into the Gulf of Mexico and then up the East Coast. So the uh, larva drifts uh, with the currents into the Gulf of Mexico uh, and then up the drainages that the rivers that drain into the, into, uh, the Gulf and also along the Atlantic seaboard. And then they grow up. Well, the shrimp life cycle is called amphidromy, and that is that the adult shrimps uh, live in freshwater streams and um, rivers. Uh, and then they, when they, they also breed there. And then when the time comes, they either migrate down near the sea or into the sea uh, to release their uh, larvae. And the larvae are planktonic. And they go through several stages in either in the estuary, uh, river estuary, or out in the open sea, depending on the species. Then after that, anywhere from uh, one to two or three months, the young shrimp settles to the bottom 
and then has to find its way to a uh, delta, a river mouth, and then make its way upstream. And that's where I got interested in it, because uh, here in the lower Mississippi, uh, there's a really a massive migration of little teeny juveniles starting in the Atchafalaya Delta, where we studied it, which is a, a distributary of the Mississippi, uh, all as far north at least as uh, Butte La Rose, which is about 144 kilometers upstream. But we know they go much further than that. And of course, they'd have to to get up into your area. And uh, a uh, fisheries biologist, uh, Paul Hartfield, we've worked with him. He uh, has retired now, but he was a uh, freshwater ecologist and, and endangered species ecologist with uh, the U.S. Uh, wildlife and Fishery. So we worked with him in the area around Jackson, Mississippi, with a student, uh, Tyler Olivier, uh, who's now Dr. Olivier. And they found and, uh, that mig migrating juveniles were abundant, at least as far as mid at the mid-Arkansas area. So they migrate up that far, and they're getting bigger as they grow. They grow, and they get bigger as they go along. Uh, now, the uh, dilemma is, uh, first of all, why are they no longer abundant upstream? Well, that is uh, due to all the uh, river control structures that have been built uh, along the river, especially since the great flood of 1927. All the, there were levees before, but the, the, the effort into levees uh, became a much greater all along the river. And uh, that interferes uh, with the, uh, their upstream migration in various ways. The habitat has changed, uh, there's pollution. So for many factors, uh, they uh, have declined drastically. And uh, again, a find like you found up in the, uh, upper reaches of the Mississippi and the Missouri area is relatively rare. Now there's a, um, a wildlife, a, I'm sorry, a fisheries biologist, uh, Dr. Uh, Bob Rabick. And he was formerly with the uh, Open Rivers Field Station uh, in uh, uh, near Cape Girardeau. And he invited me up because he wanted to see, he had seen what he thought were macrobrachium and I did go up there and we did find some in trawling the river, but uh, I never found it. We never found any uh, breeding adults. So uh, again, a, a part of the mystery of all this is that in the 1930s, up to the 1930s, there was a fishery for river shrimps down the, uh, the lower Ohio and Mississippi rivers. And uh, a figure, for example, in uh, in in the lower uh, Mississippi River uh, was about 500,000 pounds per year in the 1930s. But then uh, in the late 1970s, 1970s, when the, no long, after that, the data was no longer kept because the fisheries had declined so much, it was about 1,500 pounds. So the, the, the river shrimp has declined uh, drastically, even even in lower Mississippi, but it's certainly abundant enough to find and study, which we did. So as far as this life cycle, the eggs have to be in salt water to, to live? Uh, no, the, the females breed upstream and the eggs are attached in these shrimps underneath the tail, just like in a lobster or a crab. So they're incubated by the females, she aerates them by flapping her little swimmerettes, 
and she cleans them. She has little cleaning appendages, little, little claws with brushes on. And that, uh, then they will hatch and they will hatch as a uh, first uh, stage larvae. And there, uh, we know there are nine larval stages. And that's the, the first stage larva uh, is uh, a non-feeding stage, but it has some yolk left over from the embryo. And so it's able to survive for about three to five days uh, before it absolutely has to molt and go into the second stage, that's when feeding begins. So if they don't, and they will only do that if they're in water of some salinity. So for example, down here in the Atchafalaya, the females are breeding upstream. They begin a, a, a downstream migration down to the Atchafalaya Delta estuary. And they, uh, the eggs, or in some cases, if the embryos hatch early, they will drift down to the estuary, which it has about at that time of the year, about 10 to 15 parts per thousand salinity. Uh, if they reach that salinity, then they will uh, go on and complete the uh, rest of the larval stages. Now, in the case of uh, Ohioni, we know that they don't do them all in the delta, that, that the flood at that time, the flood stage of the river, uh, sweeps them out to sea. So they're out there in the Gulf somewhere. We don't know where. Uh, that's a very mysterious part of the life cycle. But the planktonic development, which has been followed in the lab, takes about two to three months, depending on uh, temperatures and so on. So after that, the, uh, the little larva, which has gone through nine different stages, and in each stage, it gains more and more appendages. It finally settles to the bottom, and then it has to make its way, uh, probably to help with, with currents in the Gulf, uh, to an area near the mouths of streams or, or rivers. And if it is successful, then it starts this migration uh, uh, upstream. And they start that migration when they're only really a few millimeters long. And then they keep growing as they go further and further north. And, and they settle out as they go along. Now, exactly why they settle, where they do, uh, I'm not really sure. Some of them drop out on the way and, and uh, begin their adult life uh, as they grow. So that's the deal. They, they, they have to make it to salt water, the fir, uh, first stage larva within about three to five days. And this is a, a life cycle, which is really um, common in tropical areas with tropical freshwater shrimps. Many, many species do this. Um, when I uh, was in, I spent five years in Puerto Rico in, in the beginning of my career, and I was a marine biologist, I am a marine biologist, but, uh, the students were telling me about these shrimps in the freshwater streams. And I, well, I study shrimps. So I better go find out what's going on here. And there are lots of freshwater uh, shrimps which are not related. Some of them related to our river shrimp. Some aren't. But they all do the same thing. They do exactly the same thing. They uh, release their larvae upstream, uh, and then they drift to the sea and get into salt water. Or they, in some cases, the females will migrate down and release them directly. So that's a very common... Um, Life cycle. There are they are there are amphidromous shrimps. I mean, uh, fishes as well. So uh, go ahead. Yeah, and and so after they release these, so like a, a shrimp in Cape Girardeau, let's say it, yeah. she's going to swim down at least five days up from the mouth of the Mississippi and release these eggs, or they're going to come off of her. Okay, that's the there's the rub, <laughs> because. <laughs> 
because uh, we know from uh, the older literature, the 1930s, a, uh, again, they were common all up and, uh, up and down the river. And they were adults. They were female adults. We know that because there's a thesis that was done at the University of Indiana in the 1930s by, um, I've forgotten his first name, but McCormick. And uh, he shows in his dissertation uh, adult shrimps uh, with eggs. And this is in Chester, Illinois. So that's even farther up upstream in the, the Ohio River. So uh, if the embryonic development is only two to three weeks, then the females got to get within three to five day uh, stri uh, striking distance to release the larvae uh, and get them into the sea. And that's really a long trip. We've made all kinds of calculations. And uh, for example, uh, the, in the Atchafalaya, the, the uh, maximum flood uh, water velocities is two, two and a half kilometers per hour. So we figure out they could get, you know, they have to get within so many miles of the Gulf uh, to release their embryos in order for the, uh, to release the larvae in order for those larvae to get down to the Gulf. So it really is kind of a stretch to get all the way from Chester, Illinois, all the way down to the Mississippi. It really would take, you know, maximum flow all the time for two or three months, which doesn't happen. And uh, they, the, the females are starting up way upstream and they already have their embryos. So there's one, there's a couple of hypotheses to explain that. One is that many of the migrators that are coming from the Gulf, of course, they get all the way upstream and then uh, they grow and become adults. They get embryos, but they may start the migration. We don't know, but they never make it. We think that's a dead, that was a dead population up there. That's one possibility. In other words, they were recruited from the Gulf, but they don't contribute anything to the Gulf. So it was the downstream populations that did most of the contributions of Lori uh, to the system. That's, that's a hypothesis. We don't know if that's true. The other one is, which is probably even farther out, but who knows, is that there are uh, in the area of the lower uh, Ohio, there, there were in the past at least lots of salines, uh, streams that were coming from or over uh, areas of high salt concentration. And that when the Mississippi flooded in the spring uh, and there were no levees in the, in, the, in, the, in the past, in the far past, that that flooded those areas and there was enough salinity and enough time in the floodplain for a plankton community to develop, which the larvae could feed on. But again, that's kind of far-fetched, but it's a possibility because there are extensive salt deposits uh, in uh, the lower Mississippi Valley uh, beneath the surface. So, yeah, it's kind of a mystery what was going on there. So we just don't know. And the reason that they became uh, they almost really endangered, in some cases extinct, in the upper Mississippi and then in, in parts of the, in the Ohio River is because of, uh, probably because of all the changes, the levees and uh, high dams and so on, uh, various factors that change the, the ecology of the river. But again... <laughs> They, they were they were abundant in the upper Mississippi, you know, up near Cairo and into lower, at least the lower Ohio River uh, up until the 1930s. Again, abundant enough for a major fishery. I mean, well, not as not as great as the Gulf of Mexico or anything, but for the locals, that was certainly a significant fishery, both uh, for food and also for bait. And of course, people still today, at least down here, uh, fish them for bait 
they pro probably sell them to local bait uh, dealers. Uh, some people even eat them. Um, they get to be about three and a half maximum, three and a half to four inches long, which is not a huge shrimp, but it's, you know, uh, edible size. I've eaten them. Uh, I didn't really particularly uh, think they were that great, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I'm, I guess I'm more used to eating uh, shrimps from the Gulf. But they certainly are edible. And people, uh, I do know that uh, up until the sometime in the 1980s, uh, restaurants in Baton Rouge occasionally served uh, uh, mac uh, river shrimp, macrobrake in Ohio. So, so, yeah. So how, and, and I'm, I'm reading this book right now about krill and, you know, they're a related, and, and I just didn't realize all these complexities in, in all these um, crustaceans, if you will. Um, how, how, how does a krill or how does a, a shrimp even swim up the Mississippi? Like, how are they able to do that? Or is there a certain speed or flow where, where they can't go up? And is that where okay. like channelization comes in? Well, that's a good, that's a very good point. And we uh, uh, worked with the, uh, worked with students and, and oh, by the way, I should mention absolutely Jim De La Husi who's a Louisiana naturalist. Uh, he just uh, a couple a year ago won the Louisiana naturalist of the year. And he was the one that got me started in all this. Uh, well, in Puerto Rico, I was very interested in the system. I was going to study the freshwater shrimps there, but then I was offered the job uh, in Louisiana university of Louisiana at Lafayette. But as I was leaving uh, a young ecologist uh, from, he was there at the university of uh, Oak, Oklahoma at Norman. Now he's at University of Ohio. I think he's retiring. Um, uh, Alan Kovich. Uh, I, uh, he, he was talking to me and I said, well, this is a really interesting system. And uh, he got interested in it and he also studied this system. Now, the reason I mention him is that uh, in this upstream migration, there are two ways they can get around this rapid river flow. First of all, it's just the time of the year at which they're migrating. And when I studied Ohioni and the Atchafalaya, uh, the maximum uh, number of juveniles were pa passing the stations that we were monitoring at Butlerose, at Jim Delahousie's place, uh, at, at when the river was just starting to fall. It was starting to d decrease and become lower. So they don't uh, migrate upstream when the flow is, is maximum, generally speaking. The other trick that they have is that uh, when we saw them swimming upstream, they're always near the bank, always. I mean, within a meter or two. And we took samples out in the mid-channel and so on. We never found them there. As we got closer to the bank, they became more and more abundant. And the reason that they swim along the bank is that the the uh, water velocity decreases because of friction with the bank, with the bottom in the bank as it gets shallower and shallower. So the, the flow rate is lower uh, along the bank. Now, there are the species, for example, in the tropics and, um, and in, in the tropics especially, where the, it's not really rivers that they're, they're, they inhabit rivers, but a lot of them just inhabit uh, streams or smaller rivers where uh, they're very shallow. And there are waterfalls, uh, natural waterfalls along the way. And when they get to a point where they can't go up any further, the flow's too fast, 
there's a, a waterfall, they get out of the water and they stay in the splash zone where it's wet, but then they creep their crawl their way up past the waterfall and then continue on as long as the waterfall is not too high, but they can do it. And, uh, and that's, that's another option. Now we don't think Ohioni, uh, crawls, uh, up along the riverbank because actually the fellow that, uh, the naturalist that I'm talking about, Jim De La Husi, the reason I got involved in all this, uh, in Louisiana, I knew that, uh, the river shrimp was, was probably Amphidromus, but, uh, there's no real literature on it. And I, was uh, talking to uh, Jim one day. Uh, I didn't know him at all. Uh, he sent out an email to several faculty members with a picture of this shrimp. And he says, I have no, I, I, I'm very familiar with the river shrimp. I've been a commercial river fisherman in my time. Uh, this is not the, our river shrimp. Does anyone know what it is? Well, it turned out to be another species of macrobrachium, uh, carcinus, which is another Gulf species, but which is usually not found in the Mississippi. So I got it. I was very excited. I said, I, I know what that is. And I contacted him. And then we started talking about the river shrimp migration. And he was just fascinated by that. He said he'd never heard of that. And I said, well, let's see, let's calculate. And I made a quick calculation or a, a careful calculation as best I could with the little information I had. Well, the reproductive season starts in such and such a month, March, April. Uh, we know that the larvae take 40 to 80 days to develop out in the sea. Uh, so I said, maybe somewhere along June or July, you could uh, start watching the bank and see if you see any crawling around or swimming around. And he did night after night, his uh, house is on the Atchafalaya. So we went down every night and when it was dark because migrations usually occur at night. And he started looking and one day I got an email from him and there were all these little baby shrimps and he even took a video swimming slowly upstream you know and i went bananas i went <laughs> we went out there with video cameras and started this study and he was vital in doing all this but anyway uh we saw that uh, they migrate at least where we were monitoring them and taking videos and with um equipment that we could uh, measure speed uh, that they swim at about a kilometer per hour so it takes them a while to get, you know, and that, that's only at night. And we only saw them swimming at night. So uh, it, it will take them a while, quite a while to get way upstream. Now, uh, the thing is, I thought initially when I wrote that paper, the first paper, we only saw them swimming at night. So I thought, well, during the day, they, they settle down and uh, along the shore. And river fishermen, by the way, often collect these river shrimp simply by going along the shoreline and wherever trees uh, like willow trees and, and uh, so on are hanging into the water, uh, they will simply take a net and, and shake it out, shake the, all those branches out and they will get uh, some river shrimp. So I thought they might be doing something like that. Uh, later, uh, the student uh, who did so much work on these, uh, Tyler Olivier, uh, when Paul Hartfield up in Mississippi, in, uh, our, uh, Mississippi uh, got a hold of us. We said, well, we think they, they migrate, but we don't know how far. So he started looking at migration, he and Tyler. But they set traps on the bottom. Uh, and and then they also sampled uh, during, uh, at, at night, they sampled with nets. But during the day, they had traps on the bottom. And they found that 
that even the traps were, were getting full of these little uh, juveniles. So we think that they're swimming along the bank at night. Uh, so the visual predators uh, are, are not in operation. And then during the day, they're crawling along along the bottom where it's more a little more turbid. But uh, again, that's uh, our, our preliminary findings on that. But we think they do migrate 24 hours a day. So that might in increase uh, the possibility of getting way upstream, which they obviously do. And, and like way up here, you know, there's, there's dikes everywhere. Exactly. And so if this little thing was trying to swim upstream, you have this dike that would essentially push it into the current. It's not a dam, but I mean, almost mm -hmm. for its purposes. You're right. No, I think you're absolutely right that they are swimming along the shoreline and then they hit that obstacle and then they swim, try to get around it. And then they're carried out in, into the current. I think the, you, you hit the nail on the head. And that's one of the ways in which the upstream migration has been blocked, uh, at least along the Mississippi. You know, in the other in other rivers where there are high dams like the uh, Red, uh, it just stops them. It stops them cold. The only there are about five species of uh, six species of macrobrachian uh, in the Gulf of the, in, in rivers that drain into the uh, Gulf of Mexico, and one of them is macrobrachium carcinus. And carcinus is it becomes huge. I mean, you know, the river shrimps are three. Our river shrimps are three to four uh, inches maximum. Uh, these get up to be at least twelve. Uh, can be the big males can be up to twelve uh, inches in length from the tip to the to the uh, tip of the tail. Tip of the. Oh my goodness! Oh yeah, uh, I've seen a, a, a specimen up in the Smithsonian, in the Natural History Museum in the crustacean collection, I think is even bigger than that. I had one on my shelf for a long time, and then uh, I, it, it's been donated to the Smithsonian. But uh, yeah, it can be enormous. That's just the big males, you know, like a big dominant male. Well, Ohioni doesn't have that system. In Ohioni, the females are the big, big ones, and the males are the small ones. So it's a different mating system. Uh, Carcinus also occurs down in the Caribbean, and I, you know, I've seen them down there. And they're fish down there, uh, sort of on an artisanal uh, basis. Um, and they, they've been somewhat studied. And there's like uh, these dominant males control the territory in the stream that they uh, occur. And so the females in macrobrachium, this where the where the male where there are dominant males, big dominant males, it's actually the females that smells these guys and seeks them out, and then. The male uh, protects them while they molt, and molting is necessary uh, for mating. Uh, in Ohioni, it's, it's probably not that way. In fact, we've gotten them to mate in the lab. It's uh, first come, first serve. As soon as the female molts, uh, a female that's ready to spawn, uh, the first male that, that comes along uh, will, will mate with her, and then he will just leave her. So it's two different kinds of mating systems. Well, anyway, the reason I brought that up was that the there are uh, high dams uh, or dams in the various rivers that drain into the uh, Gulf of Mexico and Texas. But uh, one pair of workers, uh, I can't remember the, the year, but anyway, they found they, they did find carcinus uh, upstream, some carcinus, reduced populations. And I th they think that the juveniles get big enough that they can crawl around uh, the sides of these high dams and get upstream. So that's, yeah. A yeah. But, if, 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 but for all the other species, any kind of high dam 
or again, it's like the kind of dikes that you're talking about uh, will will block them because they they need to go along they go along the banks of the river. What well, one quick question on that? There, I, I had just heard that they're doing a fish passage, um, Saberton, Upper Mississippi, up from St. Louis, but but they're starting to put these in, which is really exciting for me. But do, do you think that those could be designed to help in, in the shrimp probably don't get that far up, but just for example, would a fish passage uh, apparatus like that ever benefit the shrimp or could they be made to, to do that? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, it has been done uh, mainly experimental studies, but in, uh, I think the, uh, the Japanese were the first to, and there are, uh, Amphidromous river shrimps in in Japan also, in the lower uh, islands, and uh, they have made uh, uh, shrimp ramps. You know, the same sort of thing as a fish passage, and they even they tested different uh, inclinations and and so on. And uh, they they can crawl up these as long as they're kept as long as they're wet, as long as there's some some flow. The the, the little river shrimp does need some kind of indication of where the flow is in order to keep going up upstream. But that's been done, and it's also been done in the Caribbean, uh, again, mainly on an experimental basis. Um, so yeah, and uh, actually Tyler Olivier, Dr. Olivier, uh, when he was a student, uh, tried to see if Ohioni could do that. So he made experimental, he published a paper, we published a paper, he was the major, the major author, uh, with ramps that we set up in the lab, we collected uh, these, uh, small juveniles uh, that were doing migrating, put them in a pool and had tried different flow speeds and different uh, inclinations on the ramp. And he did get some to uh, climb up and, and over uh, the ramp. Now, but they were, uh, it was a rather weak response compared to the, some of these other species that can get up and crawl around on, on in, in really what is bare rock. Uh, so, it, but it's possible that that, that could help. Yes, it certainly, huh. certainly should be tested on a on a higher or, or on a, a higher, a bigger scale basis. And I should also add that lighting is important. The uh, people in Japan who looked at this uh, found, uh, for example, it, it, instead of putting uh, a ramp on each side of the river, uh, they only used one, and then they uh, used uh, lighting. Uh, to uh, which the, the shrimps avoid to kind of direct them across the river. Uh, actually, these are these are not major rivers; these are smaller rivers. And so, apparently, they were able. They thought that would direct them across uh, to the, to the ramp. So, that kind of work has been done, and it really is worth uh, exploring. With uh, at least getting it back up, getting Ohioni to some abundance uh, that it was in the past. Okay, I have another question, and this may be out here, so, so rein me in here if it is, but I, I've read these nitrogen studies on salmon. I guess nitrogen has different isotopes where mm -hmm. the, the salmon give all this, you know, um, nitrogen, nutrients upriver, and I was curious, I was thinking about our podcast today, and I was like, I wonder if, if these shrimp have an isotope that you could test to see like historical abundance or, or something measurable beside these rivers. Uh, we did try using uh, some, uh, some uh, 
isotopes uh, like sulfur and nitrogen uh, to uh, kind of uh, see if the, 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 I can't remember the details right now, but the uh, ratio of one isotope to another was higher, is, uh, certain elements is higher in marine waters than it is in fresh water. So we looked at the, the decline in the ratio coming upstream, and there was uh, some indication that that occurred. But as far as what you're talking about, I, I really don't, uh, uh, I don't know of those studies, so I really can't make a, a good opinion about that. Okay, I, I was yeah. just curious. Um, and is there a specific um, predator-prey relationship? Like, is there one animal that's preying on these shrimp specifically, or, or do they have some sort of symbiotic relationship? Is there any any key players that, that interplay with this uh, species? Well, uh, they certainly have. They're certainly uh, certainly uh, preyed upon by uh, river fishes. Um, I don't know of any specific studies that have looked at which fishes have them, but they, they certainly are found in, in some spe uh, species of predatory fish. I, I'm, I'm uh, sure that the catfish and, and drum and all the other kinds of freshwater fishes will, will prey on them. So, so uh, no, there's no, I don't think there's any kind of symbiotic relationship. I think this, the, the, the shrimp are just running the gauntlet every day when they, so that's why, for example, the migration occurs at night. At least, at night, at least it keeps the visual predators away during that uh, period of time. Because everybody likes to eat shrimp. Yes, I guess. <laughs> okay. Plant, you know, uh, for example, the fortunately the the silver carp and so on, uh, they're plankton eaters, so they won't touch them probably. But uh, all the bottom feeders and uh, midwater fishes will certainly. I think we'll certainly go down and chow down on them. Yeah, and, and what's crazy about this is, you know, we, we've, some people use shrimp up here, but it's kind of an exotic bait. And, you know, like blue catfish are kind of migratory. Like if you use shrimp here, it's, it's likely that they've encountered some kind of shrimp running the rivers. Yeah, and actually, uh, uh, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, there are local uh, fishermen here that, to collect them and sell them to bait shops. So they must be good, pretty good bait. And, and you, you said something about catching them, like picking up willows or other, other um, trees or foliage and I guess yeah. shaking them. Is that the main way to catch them? Uh, that's one way, uh, but uh, a lot of the river fishermen use traps. So they're, they're little wooden traps or um, any kind of shrimp that you might want to catch uh, a small, uh, a small fish, uh, little, uh, uh, those little, uh, cylindrical type, uh, like a minnow trap. Yeah. Minnow traps is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Uh, and they also make their own traps, little box traps. Uh, we used, uh, a big shrimp trap that, uh, Jim De La Housie and his fellow commercial fishermen around here have used. Uh, when the, the commercial fishermen uh, use them uh, to collect rather large quantities of shrimp that they could use as bait. Okay, and the, the last, I guess, question I had, and I, I should probably ask this at the first. I have two, but this is the last kind of biology one. We, we have a shrimp here, the Mississippi grass shrimp. I think it's a little shrimp. Mm -hmm. 
and and it doesn't have this complex life cycle, correct? No, no. As uh, Paleomonides paludosus uh, to the west of the Mississippi, and then there's another species on the east side, but they look very, very similar. And uh, yeah, they they don't do that. They uh, complete their life cycle uh, upstream. They have uh, the, the, the larval development uh, all occurs uh, in the small streams that in lake, for example, in they occur in, in lakes and, and ponds and even temporary ditches, as long as the fish population isn't too high. Okay. And, um, and, and they're real small, so, so no one would confuse at least the adults, correct? No, no. The, the smaller ones uh, can be confusing. And there are, there's a, uh, there is literature, uh, there was a U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Bulletin by Gary Anderson. Um, and that's probably available online. It's probably online somewhere. And that shows to uh, shows how to distinguish between small macrobrachium and the different species of Palomonides. There are various species of Palomonides. The one that you're mentioning is a completely freshwater one. There are other species that uh, can get into uh, brackish water, but they don't have the complex life cycle that uh, macrobrachium ohioni does. Okay, and and I was looking at trying to, to find an expert on on these shrimp, and I found you, and it, it on your uh, page it said you went to UMKC. It, are do you have ties oh, here? Yeah. I sure did. Yeah, I graduated from there uh, with a degree in uh, biology, and uh, during the late '60s, uh, you might remember or uh, know how old you are, but anyway, they're still showing on TV the Jacques Cousteau specials. They were uh, always on TV in the, in, when I was in uh, high school and college. So I thought, man, I'd like to be a marine biologist. So after UMKC or during my senior year, I applied to some uh, graduate schools. And one of them, the Scripps Institution uh, of Oceanography, which is associated uh, with UC San Diego. That's where I got my uh, a, a doctorate was in Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I was very fortunate to go there. It's a, one of the premier oceanographic uh, institutions of the world. And it's right on the beach. That's a lot of fun, too. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Do you, do you have any memories or any anything notable that happened while, while you were here? Here in, Louis, in Louisiana? Oh, in Missouri? Oh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> actually, I was a city boy, really. Uh, didn't really get out into, into, the, into the wilds of Missouri very much. But I was lucky enough in... Um, at the university, there was a ecology professor, Dr. Richard uh, Myers, Dick Myers. He passed away uh, a year or two ago. He was in his 30s then, a really young, vigorous guy, and he uh, he just made uh, ecology fun. But he was, you know, he he was he wanted us to be scientists too. So in his course, he had I believe something like eight field trips, which was a lot for a, a undergraduate class. And we went to caves in southern Missouri. He was kind of a, he was a bad expert. We went on birding. Uh, we went to Squaw Creek up in northern Missouri to look at the fall migrations. I mean, that's what really inspired me to keep going in in, in biology. And then the other courses that I took to at UMKC. Oh, that was a good institution. Has one of the best science libraries in the world, the Linda Hall Library. Huh. Yeah, it's an independent. It's not, I don't believe it's not, it's not officially part of UMKC, but it's uh, near, or near at the, at the campus. 
So of course, university students use it all the time. And I, I did a lot of my research on papers and so on. But Dr. Myers taught us how to do, uh, really use the scientific method. You know, Don't just go in and look around and describe something. Uh, see, a pro see some interesting question, make a hypothesis about it, uh, plan your uh, observations or experiments, and then come to your uh, conclusions. You know, good old scientific method. I remember that uh, the first field trip we went on, I, he had us write up a paper you know, our, our, our results. And we worked as a, a different groups of students as teams. And I, uh, I was a pretty good student and I handed my paper in. I thought, man, I ace that bugger. And, uh, he gave me C minus. I thought, Whoa. I said, what? I said, what? <laughs> you know, he said, don't worry, you'll catch on. Here's what you need to do to fix it up. And so, uh, he, he was a great teacher. And then the, the next semester he invited me to go on a graduate level, uh, course, which was just mainly field trips to you know long-term field trips and that was wonderful that really got me going and then that summer of my senior year before i went to scripps uh, dr jim vile who uh later went to university of tulsa uh, was studying salamanders and he uh hired me as a, a research assistant to go with a graduate student jim stewart out to uh, north carolina to study salamanders for you know we camped out for weeks at a time and again those are the kinds of experiences that uh, really turned me on to biology. And Southern Missouri is just, you know, I was just amazed about how, how beautiful it is and how many different kinds of uh, organisms there are and a really, really good place to grow up. I wish I would have known about it all sooner, but at least I did a good dose of it before I went to graduate school. So, Yeah, well, that's, that's awesome. Um, and, and you wrote a, a book on shrimp correct if anyone listening has further they, they want to get into it you you wrote a, a book yes in 2004 uh, this is on one group of shrimps which includes macrobranchium uh it's called uh, remarkable shrimps uh the full title is remarkable shrimps adaptations uh and natural history of the caridians which is the group now, i would like to also tell you that i have a new book on shrimps coming out in uh, late march and this one is also called Shrimps, and it has a different title. Uh, but it's coming out. It's going to be published by, it is being published by Springer Nature. And it covers all groups of shrimps. So I expanded my coverage to, like, all the shrimps that occur in the Gulf and marine environments. And um, uh, the different kinds of shrimps that occur in the world. And then I updated the, the, the shrimps that I covered in uh, the 2004 book. So... It has uh, a lot, uh, it has about 26 uh, plates, which uh, are composed of photos from different colleagues showing all the different kinds of shrimps in different ecological situations, different aspects of shrimp biology. And it will be, it's uh, got about 242 figures. So it really is pretty comprehensive and it will be available a uh, hard copy and also as an ebook. So the, in fact, the proofs, uh, are coming in about a week or two. So uh, I got then I have to put my nose to the grindstone one one more time and make sure everything's right. And uh, hopefully it'll be a real nice uh, book when it comes out. Awesome. And and send us a link and we'll we'll promote it on our uh, a page. And I don't know if anyone's we're we're kind of on, on the edge of a shrimp here, but I, I find it fascinating and, and hopefully someone else will too. Okay. Well remember this you know Shrimps are, are 
part of the food chain. So it's important for fishes too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, thank you so much for being on here. Do you have anyone else you want to thank or anything else you want to talk about? No, I think I covered the, the three, the, the th three or four personal uh, ones that were most important in this work. There are a lot of other students involved too, but uh, Paul Hartfield, Bob Ravick, uh, by the way, he, he wrote the, fishes of nebraska and is he is producing a book pretty soon on the fishes of missouri if, if i have everything correct and he uh, he was a, he's a real missouri river uh, biologist and then there's uh, jim de la Husi who really got me started and helped me uh, work on this project uh, tyler olivier uh, who got his doctorate uh, based on macrobrachian research as well as other students so, yes, I, I, I couldn't have done this by myself. In fact, I, that's why I wasn't doing it, because I needed uh, help from, uh, from others. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Best of luck on your book. And if you ever want to come back on uh, and talk, we'd, we'd love to have you. I think it's just fascinating. Okay. Well, you're welcome. And it was a, a real pleasure for me. I always like uh, talking about shrimps. And it's been a pleasure uh, having you as uh, a host. So thank okay. you. What a cool story. Thanks again for Dr. Bauer for taking time out of his busy schedule. He is publishing this book and publishing a, a scientific book like this, it doesn't take hours and hours. It takes years and years. And I'm excited. We're going to post a link for the book and you're kind of getting a preview at least of one species of the, of the many covered in that book. And, and just the expertise and all the studies that, that go into these awesome crustaceans. Looking ahead, February 18th is the Central Missouri Catfish Tournament, Wigwam, Lake of the Ozarks. So upper Lake of the Ozarks, if you're interested in going to that, I would encourage you to go. First of all, I'd encourage you to listen to our last podcast, if you haven't, with Joe Bell. Kind of give you a primer on what to do, what to look for. But this will be a good time to get out on the Lake of the Ozarks, and it's the very start of our point season. So even if you don't think you're going to chase the points, get in on the first one, and if you do well, might think about doing the points for a while, at least while it's mathematically makes sense for you. March 15th, spoonbill season, snagging season, paddlefish, so, in a month, the Central Missouri Catfish Tournament circuit season begins, and then just a month after that, less than a month after that, spoonbill season starts in the middle of March. So, we are right there. I'd encourage everyone to get their to-do list done, get their boat prepped. If you're not fishing already, get, get everything ready because this is going to be the best year yet. Hopefully, we have a world record knocked down right here in the state of Missouri by a Missouri Catfish Podcast listener. And my contact information is MissouriCatfishPodcast at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Tell us what you'd like to talk about. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Almost forgot. A good friend of mine, George Shervington of Bevere, Missouri, we've been coon hunting partners friends for years and years and we've always hunted the same or similar bloodlines and he has a couple pups that he was looking to sell he made what he thinks is the best cross yet 
and he just has a couple left and he'd like to get into the hands of some hunters. So if you think that is you, contact the podcast at MissouriCatfishPodcast at gmail.com and I will get you in touch with him. Best of luck. Get get those boats ready and tight lines. I was born by a river In a little tent Oh, and just like